How about the fact that I hate my son? Like, come on, he's sitting on the computer in his fucking underwear, wasting his time in some chit-chat room, going back and forth with some other fucking jerk-off, giggling like a little schoolgirl. Wanna fucking smash his fucking face in. My son. What do you think about that? Welcome to part four, four-part series on The Sopranos and the fathers and men of The Sopranos. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hozier. And holy cow, are we happy to be recording this fourth installment of basically seven hours. We're coming at you every Monday for the last month. After talking to our favorite Sopranos experts, Alan Sepinwall, the TV critic from Rolling Stone, and the wonderful Matt Zoller-Seitz of New York Magazine and Vulture and RogerEbert.com, both of whom are the authors of The Sopranos Sessions. We are so lucky to talk to them, having known James Gandolfini, our hero, and David Chase, our hero, and we have a surprise for you guys. We are going to be splitting this episode into two parts. Season six and seven of The Sopranos, HBO deals with it as 6A and 6B. It's 21 episodes. 6A starts with 12 and then... 6B finishes a year later after that 12th episode with nine more. Hmm. And the reason for this has to do with Hollywood negotiations that are not interesting, but we're pointing this out because we've been telling you the story and the pertinent things to focus on in every season. So we thought we would split this up. That's right. And so just for the listeners at home, if you're watching The Sopranos on HBO, season six is referred to it as 6A and 6B. So an homage to that, we're giving you part 4A, which is this episode. And then we're going to do part 4B, which Mm -hmm. is going to recap 6B, aka season seven. If that makes you want to lay down in a dark room because it's so confusing, join the club. Um, We've just heard Tony in a session with Dr. Melfi talking about how much he hates his son. Mm -hmm. But we know from, you know, our last conversation that season six opens with Tony being shot by his uncle Junior. So we've looked at Tony now. We've looked at him from both sides now, as Joni Mitchell would say, as a son and as a father and also as the self he wants us to know if we're a woman like Melfi or sometimes his wife, Carm, or a new girlfriend, the facade that tends to evaporate quickly or a man to his mafia uncles, brothers, sons and nephews and to himself. In season five, we hear a lot from the show about the price of this performance of gender. And despite his best efforts to negotiate his way back into the family home, it's not enough to save him from the random act of violence that opens season six, where Uncle Junior has shot Tony when he goes to his house to do a welfare check. And that's where we pick up now. What will happen Will it change him? That's right. So as we left it in the last episode, season six opens, holy shit, with Tony getting shot. Also, in that episode, the other thing that happens beside the shooting that's significant, well, it's a significant moment, but it happens to a very insignificant character who's Eugene Petrakova. He's like an ancillary wise guy. You never really hear much from him. And this episode, you learn that he has come into an inheritance and his wife really wants to move to Florida and buy a house and him to like essentially get out. And he quickly realizes that's just a complete no-no. We learn he has a little girl and also a teenage son. 
the teenage son is on drugs, maybe on like opioids or something, Oxycontin. And he and his wife feel like if they could just get him relocated, that he could sober up. And Syl is like, yeah, I'll run it by Tony. But you know immediately that the answer is you're absolutely not moving to Florida and leaving behind this life of organized crime. It doesn't work like that. And interestingly, when Christopher gets made, which we played that clip two episodes ago at the beginning where Polly's saying this is the most important family, Eugene is the other person that's getting made in that ceremony. And so Eugene, realizing that he's not going to be able to get out, hangs himself and he's wearing a members only jacket, which is what the name of this episode is, members only. But yeah, the big action, and it is obviously that Tony gets shot, but it's an intentional underlining at the beginning of the season of like, the only way that you can leave is to die or to kill yourself. Isn't he also working with the FBI? Yeah, you find out in that episode that he was an informant, that he's giving information. So he knows because all the rehabs are in Florida Mm -hmm. or Minnesota, but Florida's better if you're going to inherit money. And his kids and his wife, the only way they'll be able to actually make that happen, because either way, he's going to get found out. He wants out anyway, which is probably why he was trying to work with the FBI. But now he's realized that there really is no hope. And even if he left because he's gone to Tony and said, here's what I want to do, he would be taken out like all of his brethren before him. So yeah, it's that grim reminder. There's no getting out once you're in. And it's also another dark harbinger of things to come. Members only comes up again, Mm -hmm. but it is an allusion to not just the fashionable coat from the 80s. (laughs) You know, members only Mm -hmm. are the mob. The fraternal fantasy. We're brothers for life. I'm in a club. Mm -hmm. My favorite saint is St. Peter. (laughs) Blood brothers. Sword fight. Sword fight. Talking about blood brothers. So now we get to the second episode of season six. It's called Join the Club. And you see that Tony is clinging to life in the hospital after being shot. They do not know if he's going to make it. And... Carmela and all the family, the big F family and the little F family have have been encamped in the waiting room of the hospital. You and I have talked about this so many times. I cannot watch these scenes. Yeah. Crying. It's so you and I have both seen our dads um, hooked up to respirators. It's really that sound. It's always the sound that gets me. And also just, you know, Carmela, Edie Falco. Holy fuck. In this episode, in this clip, we're going to play, but just this stretch of episode, she is wild with grief. It's very realistic. She's exhausted. She's not wearing any makeup. She's clearly been crying for days. As Carmela faces a reality that she's been worrying about, which is he might not make it. Yeah, their whole lives, just the constant worry that's been building up, like what will happen when he's gone, when the inevitable happens, whether that's prison or death, that's really the only two options. Mm -hmm. But she knows that and she's been struggling with not just what this does to their relationship as a married couple, but of course their kids and the grief that they are going through or have had to go through that they didn't even know to engage with yet because she's been protecting them as much as she could. Mm -hmm. And now it's all out in the open. Like their mob uncle has shot their mob father dad. And here he is, an enormous hole in his stomach. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, the hospital scenes, like every other scene in this show, is hyper-realistic. You're immediately thrown as the viewer into that intimate space of raw grief and fear. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see the humility in the guys that come to the hospital, like Chrissy and They're just kind of like, oh, my God, what is going to happen now? They're all shell-shocked. And it's funny because going back to what Polly and and Tony say to Christopher when he gets made, you know, like, this is the most important family. It's more important than than your mother and your father. Um, And also something like, 
anything you need, this guy will take care of you. I think Polly says that in reference to Tony, like he's like a father to you. And you see how these big tough wise guys probably never really stopped to think about what would happen if something happened to Tony. What would it look like for us to have to help support Carmela? You know, who do we yes. go to? You know, Sill's the second in command. And Sill, in the next stretch of episodes, really struggles with that responsibility and starts having asthma attacks and is totally stressed oh. out. Like they reluctantly give Carmela their earnings, you know? It's like anything you need. But they're also just like, oh my God, like if Tony dies, we're fucked. Like who's going to be the boss? Yeah, it's anything you need. And it's also, there's a scene where Carmela, I think it's Vito and Polly hand off some money to her and they're in an elevator and the doors are closing. They don't know that Carmela can still see them and she can. The doors haven't closed all the way. And they both just like totally like, oh God, we have to give her our money. Like this sucks. You know, the resentment is there. But going back to Tony being flat on his back with a gaping Grand Canyon-sized hole in his belly where he's been shot, we're going to play a clip of a really incredible monologue from Edie Falco. We can't even play the entire clip because it's minutes long of her emotional roller coaster, but we'll describe what happens so you can get a picture. She's talking to her comatose husband, And going back over all of her mistakes and their mistakes and being upfront about the fact that she's hated him and she's loved him and she's been hot for him and resented him, but he's a good father and she loves him. But it's just a tour de force. And of course, she won all the awards. A long time ago, I told you that you were going to go to hell when you died, when you had that MRI. And you threw my words back at me when we got separated, and you were right. It was a horrible thing to say. It's a sin, and I will be judged for it. You're a good father. You care about your friends. Yes, it's been rough between us. Oh, our hearts get so hardened against each other. I, I don't know why. But you are not going to hell. You're coming back here. I love you. Wow. Me back here. Meanwhile, Tony is somewhere. He's not in hell, although he's in some people who I know who are alive's version of hell, right? He basically has a comatose dream that we as the viewer get to spend all that time with. So we see Tony, who in this alternative version of his life, attending a conference for optics. He's an Mm. optic salesman. Do you even know what that means? No, not at all. Okay, well, me neither. But the word optics is like what you see is what you get. But in this, you know, sort of alternate world, he switches briefcases accidentally with a man named Kevin Finnerty. And he knows this because he's checking into the hotel where the conference is and finds that he has Kevin Finnerty's name and wallet and things. And so we see him through the course of this episode kind of like living out this kind of normal guy's life. Yeah, David Chase loves him a dream sequence. Yeah, Tony is in a version of hell, which is Orange County, California, but on book. <laughs> Everything about it is bizarro. The Tony Soprano that he is in the dream, who's the Mm -hmm. optic salesman, is not in the mafia. He does have a wife who's named Carmela, and he does have two kids Mm -hmm. who he talks to on the phone. But the woman's voice who talks to him is not Edie Falco's voice. 
and the children of the Tony Soprano, the optic salesman in the stream, are much younger than AJ and Meadow are now. He's also, can you believe it, faithful to Carmela. Even in Tony's coma dream, he had the chance to hook up with a hot babe at like a Radisson bar. Um, yeah. He doesn't because he couldn't imagine doing that to his wife. Um, I know. And so this also forks into like a hellish subplot where he has a case of mistaken identity with this character, this man named Kevin Finnerty, who he just sort of looks like, but he can never find Kevin Finnerty and he's getting more and more panicked. Like, I just need to get home. How am I going to get home if I don't have my ID? You know, what we were talking about in the last episode with the two Tonys, I thought, oh, this is the Tony that Tony wishes he really was. You know, right? Gandolfini plays it so brilliantly, just like so many of his roles, where you really don't see an ounce of Tony like behavior from him in the eyes, in the mannerisms, in the way he walks, the gentle tone of his voice. And that is just the neatest trick. <laughs> Very few actors can do that, mm -hmm. like convincingly. It's really surreal. I thought it was interesting that Tony was faithful in this coma dream and also that his kids are much younger. It's bittersweet to watch it because if you went into my dad's house up until he died when I was like 36 years old, mm -hmm. you would think that his kids were like four or five because all of the photos that he had, I mean, he had photos of us as adults too. But all right. of the photos that he had out and framed, and he had a lot, were as of us as little kids. Wow. And let's <laughs> see if I can get through this without crying. I think it's because, no, I'm going to have to cut this. I no. think it's because that's when he felt like the best version of himself. A hundred percent. And I've read that too, that when we all die, even our souls think that we're like 31, <laughs> yeah. you know, like old enough just to be an adult so that we know what it's like to love children and love a spouse or a partner and we're still close enough to what we were like when we were children mm. and I just think that's such a human response to just like I'm sure if I live long enough to be on a deathbed from old age I will be imagining myself as the same hot piece that I do now, you know? <laughs> and of course, like when your kids are small, they're sweeter. And they need you and they don't see through your bullshit. <laughs> you know, you're just like a hero. Right, they don't talk back. They're not disappointed in you. Um, yeah, so it made a lot of sense to me that, that in the, this dream world that the kids are young. But then meanwhile, to Tony's dream, let's look at how the kids are dealing with it. How is Meadow and AJ dealing with the bedside grief stuff? We'll start bleeding into episode three, too, which is called Mayhem. Meadow steps up to the plate. And I think at this point is probably like 21 or 22 on the show. And she's very helpful to Carmela. And she ask the doctors questions and very true to life the doctors have terrible bedside manner and are very frank with her and I think one Tony's doctors is like he's not gonna make it in so many words and Meadow is terrified but she's of complete service to her mother you see her pushing through that feeling of like I'm afraid but I have to be a grown-up right now and help my mom AJ cannot do that and I think AJ at this point is like 19 he's not in high school anymore but he is a real shit in these two episodes. And I think the one thing that he thinks he can do to, quote, I don't know, be helpful is to kill his great uncle, Junior, to avenge his father's death. And there's a scene where Christopher and Bobby stop him and are like, we heard that you were trying to buy a gun to kill Uncle June. Like, what are you doing? And... AJ is embarrassed and he's annoyed that they know about it. And he then explodes at, at Carmela because she asks him if he remembered to bring her sweater from home. And he says, no, it's like AJ is very much the like you had one job kind of thing. You had one 
job. You know, it was to buy bagels for everyone in the waiting room or it was to bring the sweater from home or it was to load the dishwasher, like whatever. It's like someone's given one task and they can't even fucking do that. And you feel that just utter rage on Carmela and Meadows' behalves of like, pull your head out of your ass. But he is tunnel vision on that he's going to get back at Uncle June. Oh my God. I know. It's it's so crazy. I just didn't expect that AJ would go there. I thought his arc with this grief was going to be like, I don't know how I feel. I don't know how I feel about my relationship with my father, or I'm afraid that he might pull through in a way. Mm. I didn't expect him to want to avenge his father's possible death against him either and it shows you know you're like oh poor kid he doesn't understand that that is not what anyone needs him to do he's quite proud of himself for being brave enough to sit sit in the hospital overnight with tony even though he's afraid it is scary to see your parents hooked up to machines there's a scene where tony tries to rip his respirator out at some point when he's not really awake. He just has a very kind of like animalistic reaction to being held down on his bed with the respirator. And he tries to pull it out. And my dad did that too. When my sister and I came into the room in the hospital when he was dying. And my instinct was to walk out of the room. And I did. I was so afraid. I was so afraid. I regret it because when I came back after I sobbed in the hallway, he was in his coma that he never came out of. You feel like you were kind of like abandoning him in that moment? Yeah, like I did. Like, even though I logically knew that he was like pretty sedated, there seemed to be like a visceral reaction on his end that he was like, quote, awake and freaking out that his daughter were in the room and he wanted these tubes out. You always think, right? Like you you think that the loss of someone that you love or you hope that it's going to be peaceful and they're going to not be afraid and knowing what's going on and that you yourself as the adult child going to be brave and strong. And so I always kind of regretted that moment. But it's funny because you see fear and grief coming out in different ways in The Sopranos' children. (laughs) Meadow rises to the occasion. AJ does not. And he is a real fucker on this episode. (laughs) So Carmela sees the TV on in the background of the hospital lobby. And there's like a inside edition or something like news segment on Tony. And and then it, it cuts to... AJ talking to the press and Carmela sees it and she comes home and we're going to play that audio. She is fucking pissed. She races upstairs. Her parents are sitting on the couch watching TV. Meadow is asleep and you just see Carmela slam the door and go running up into AJ's room. Where to God, I'm going to fucking kill you. What the fuck? You make a fool of yourself and our family on national fucking television? Look, I didn't even say that shit. They totally misquoted me. Holy shit. Well, of course they did. That's what they do. Which is why I and everybody else told you, don't talk to the press. You're the one who looked like a total asshole, dragging me around like I was five years old. You are a cross to bear. That's all you are to your father, to me, to everybody. Fuck this. I fuck it all. You're cross to bear for all of us. Yeah, there's no coming back from that with the person you just said it to. It's funny. Like, I hate AJ in this stretch of episodes because he's being so myopic and he can't help anybody. You know, teenage boy that you want to shake by the shoulders. But he's also a boy. And it was kind of shocking to me because I didn't watch the show when it was on how hated he was like all seasons like the entire series like how much yeah. he's a fucking idiot and like a just drain and a waste is aj soprano like recap culture was very anti-aj at the time and as frustrated as i am with him in these episodes later this season and absolutely in the seventh season i really came to think of him differently he's a lost kid that needed some extra help and his parents really couldn't give that to him yeah it's a horrible situation all around like you just feel for carmela who is 
like no sleep, afraid, wouldn't have said that under any other circumstances. Carmela, after this, goes to see Dr. Melfi. She runs into Melfi in the grocery store and she is feeling really guilty about what she said to AJ in that moment. Anyway, last night I was shrieking at my son and I said something, I said something very cruel. And especially since he, he has been trying so hard. How are you doing? You know, I'm frazzled, certainly, but I am more worried about them. They're, they're not kids anymore. When they were young, you know, there were certain things we could tell them about Tony's life. You know, lies. We'll just call them what they were. But now... So the issue isn't just guns in the home. They have to face all these years of... of facading they do or you do she knows about the excessive violence and the you know the dead people that she loved or claimed to love along the way yeah like tony she can't go all the way to the edge she goes further than he does obviously but she is touching on the most important thing which is admitting out loud that she brought innocence into this life and that her one job, obviously a big one, is to protect them. And she just told her son the equivalent of, I wish you were never born, which is Livia's message to Tony. It's true. It is Livia's message to Tony. The minute I met Tony, I knew who that guy was. On my second date, he brought me and my mother each a dozen roses and a, my father a $200 power drill. Not the typical story of young love. And I don't know if I loved him in spite of it or because of it. And my parents weren't like that. And I knew, you know, whether consciously or not, I knew that behind that power drill, there was probably some guy with a broken arm, you know, or, or worse. And you coped with that how? You know, I'd go to my priest and I would cry and say how bad I felt about how my husband made his money, but that was bullshit. Because there are far bigger crooks than my husband. Good, but the kids, they don't decide who they're born to. Do you think that Carmela is gonna say, that was bullshit when I was, you know, saying what I was saying to my priest and I regret it. She's like, that was bullshit because I know that there are worse people out there than Tony. It's not a, the breakthrough that you maybe think it's going to be, but I don't know what else it could have been. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, when we talk about the two Tonys and even in this mm. comatose world, Tony's subconscious is kind of suggesting that he wished he had been a, quote, better guy or Maybe yeah. in the back of his head, he always wondered what his life would have looked like. Oh, I would have been working in optics. And it's interesting to hear that Carmela tells Melfi in a moment where she's maybe been the most honest this entire series. And she says it was all bullshit. And I knew who he was. I knew that Tony Soprano was Tony Soprano, not a fantasy of someone that would become an optic salesman this whole time. Yeah, she says. I don't know if I loved him in spite of it or because of it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us who are attracted to masculine energy ask ourselves that question many times throughout our lives. I literally was just talking before we started recording with a friend who told me she's been listening to our episodes and that it's made her have to confront the fact that she really loves, quote, gorilla men. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we started this. Personally, this was like our motivation. And I've always been so attracted to that fraught dynamic because I recognize it so well with my parents, with my dad, especially, and my brothers. Hell yeah. I mean, you and I bonded over our love for gorillas and also being attracted to chaos, maybe. And that is the perfect segue into the next episode, which is titled Mayhem. Amen. So Tony takes a turn for the worst, actually. And the doctors are working on him and you don't know what's going to happen. And mm -hmm. in his dream state, Tony has now sort of become Kevin Finnerty, and he's walking up to a house, like kind of Victorian house, 
that has a huge party going on in it. And there's lots of lights and string lights and you can hear people laughing and talking and there's music. And Steve Buscemi, who plays Tony's real life cousin, Tony Blundetto, in the dream, he's just some guy who's like, welcome. You're here for the Finnerty family party. Everyone's inside waiting for you. He keeps asking Tony to give him his briefcase. And Tony's like, no, I'm good. No, thanks. You know, and Steve Buscemi will not. He's like, you got to give me the briefcase. And then Tony slash Kevin Finnerty is like, I don't know why, but I'm afraid to. And Steve Buscemi is like, it's okay. Like, you know, trying to get him to go into this house, essentially to go towards the light. And throughout this, there's a tree in the background. The trees are rustling in the wind and you hear a little girl's voice screaming, daddy, daddy, through the, the leaves. And what we see as a viewer is that the little girl calling daddy is actually Meadow at his bedside calling out for him. Don't go, daddy. Don't go, daddy. And oh and he wakes up. Wow. So his daughter, the favorite, um, is the one who can bring him out of a comatose near-death experience. Whoa. Yep. Meanwhile, AJ is rejected in the cruelest way. Not that he's not a shit, but I'm just making that parallel. He hears Meadow, and it, it just goes back to that primal father-daughter Mm. daddy's little girl she really is daddy's little girl in his coma state i always wondered if my dad could hear us as he was dying and you know he had a doctor who was like the worst i was like could he hear us and the doctor was like "Mm." he didn't answer he said he just repeated it back to me he said can he hear you Hmm." (laughs) what's interesting about tony b saying basically the monologue from it, you know, we're all here for you. I mean, Tony killed him in the last episode of the last season. So yeah, he's trying to get Tony in the coma to die, essentially. That's the thing. So we're going to skip forward. Tony is recovering and we're going to skip over the next few episodes, but I'm just going to quickly mention that in the next episode, which is called The Fleshy Part of the Thigh, the Polly Walnuts, who is the worst, but one of my favorite characters in addition to AJ, discovers that his mother is really his aunt and that his real mom was a nun who he thought was his aunt who, you know, got knocked up. So Polly goes to her bedside, to his aunt slash mom's bedside as she's dying, this nun. And as she's dying, she looks at him and says... I was a bad girl. And I just wanted to mention that it's a very, it's a chilling scene, frankly, but that's a real life thing that happened in David Chase's life. Wow. David Chase's paternal grandmother was a woman whose name was Teresa Melfi, um, which is where he got the last name Melfi from. She was married to a much older guy and they lived together in, in Providence, Rhode Island. And they had a tenant in their house who was closer to her age, David Chase's grandmother. And they had an affair. And she had two children, which she passed off as her husband's kids. But they were actually this younger tenant's kids. And those kids were David Chase's father and his aunt. This actually appears in Matt Zoller-Seitz's profile of David Chase that came out at the end of September in Vulture headline is how do you follow the sopranos about the mini saints of newark but david chase's grandmother eventually went on the run with her two children and her lover and they relocated from rhode island to newark and they changed their last name to chase and david chase told matt in this profile that when his grandmother was dying his father you know was was with her and she looked at him and said i was a bad girl so that was It was a real life thing. Um, So moving forward, Tony is recovering. He's kind of a changed man, quote unquote. He's almost died and it softened him a tiny bit. So going back to how was AJ going to be helpful? He wasn't going to do the nitty gritty, which is making sure that everybody has something to eat and offering rides to the hospital or whatever it is that you do in those moments. 
It was these big, grandiose teenage fantasy visions of I am going to kill Uncle June to avenge my father's death. And Mm. so you see that finally play out um, in an episode called Johnny Cakes. And, oh, God, the scene. Wow. Simultaneously, AJ is working at a blockbuster. He's bored. He's kind of aimless. He thinks he's going to get into working in nightclubs and event promotion. And he went to an event planner. Event planner and Tony and Carmela are just baffled by him. Later, you see AJ go to the mental hospital where Uncle June is. And Mm -hmm. he tries to stab Uncle June, but it's fumbled. He drops the knife and security guards pounce on him and he's arrested. And so I'm going to play the audio for, you know, when Tony and AJ are leaving the police station. Stop crying. Stop crying. I guess your heart was in the right place, AJ. But it's wrong. Come on. What? It's not in your nature. You don't know me. You don't know anything about me. You're a nice guy. And that's a good thing, for Christ's sakes. Bullshit. I mean it. You're a good guy, and I'm very grateful. You're a fucking hypocrite. Because every time we watch Godfather, when Michael Corleone shoots those guys in the restaurant, those assholes who tried to kill his dad, you sit there with your fucking bowl of ice cream and you say it's your favorite scene of all time. Jesus Christ, AJ. You make me want to cry. It's a movie. You gotta grow up. You're not a kid anymore. And AJ promptly vomits. Yeah. When Tony's telling him, you're a nice guy, Tony is like doing all the greatest heads of stop crying. You make me wanna cry, but I'm not gonna cry. He's a emotionally limited father, as some yeah. as some might put it. But he's actually holding AJ's face very tenderly when he's telling him it's just a movie. You have to grow up. And it's so sad. And AJ looks just heartbroken of, are you kidding me? I thought this was going to be what I could do to make you love me. Exactly. And I think, you know, Tony realizes in that moment that the very last thing he wants is for his kid to turn out like him. I think we find out that his dad, you know, turned him on to killing for the first time when he was basically just a little older than AJ now. Yeah, we hear that later, that Tony's dad made him make his bones, quote unquote, do his first hit when he was only 22. Right, so he does sort of get it a little bit, maybe because he was Kevin Finnerty for the day, that it's not in his nature. His son actually has a shot. It kind of probably was in Tony's nature. It must be, you know, or else he couldn't kill with such impunity. That's right. The next episode, it's called The Ride. And we Mm -hmm. see that Christopher has a new girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, He's moved on from Adriana, moved on in air quotes. And she tells him that she's pregnant and he's thrilled. Oh, yeah he's thrilled she's very sheepish about it like i'll i'll take care of it don't worry i'll go to the clinic tomorrow i'll get an abortion it's fine and he's like are you kidding we're gonna go to ac and get married and he's thrilled because as we talked about in the last episode especially with chingy you know this is all christopher's ever wanted and he values women based on whether or not they can you know bear children for him tony is starting to feel better and he's also bored and he tells Melfi that he's bored. Melfi's trying to get him to think about the fact that he almost died and that his life is now a gift. And Tony tells Melfi, every day is a gift. It just, does it have to be a pair of socks? His life is a pair of socks. He's very bored. And Tony and Chrissy, just for fun, are driving around and they notice some bikers are knocking off a liquor store and stealing a bunch of of really fancy wine. They catch them in like a back alley trying to sneak out. 
and they steal the wine from these bikers called the Vipers. And then they go out to dinner. And Tony, once again, the umpteenth time in this series, gets a Christopher that is desperately trying to stay sober and clean to drink at dinner, which he does, and to share some some of this knocked off wine with him. And they're having this like heart to heart in the parking lot. It's fall. They're talking about how this time of year reminds them of Halloween. And, and then they start talking about their bond with each other. Tony's like, I love you. You're like a son to me. I would do anything for you. And they've actually flashed back to the day that they decided that Adriana had to die for being an FBI informant. You see right. Christopher go to Tony's home. He is wild. He is shitting himself over what Adriana has just told him. And he's sobbing and they go into the basement. And Tony's like, it's very you know, paternal, he's hugging him and he's like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Like we're going to take care of it. And then they flash forward and there's literally an, I love you, man. They've just had shared memory of remember the day we decided to kill Adriana. (laughs) I love you, man. I love you too. It highlights, you said in the last episode, how disposable Adriana was and how disposable women are on this series of like, their takeaway from that memory is, I love you, brother. <laughs> when we worked together to kill your ex, who I also loved, good times. Love you, man. And then Christopher starts using heroin again. Same episode. You see him nodding out in an alleyway petting a dog high on heroin. Yeah, so it's like Tony just blows up his sobriety or helps him to encourages him to while subtly calling him a pussy for falling off the wagon. It's very confusing and disorienting. They're both drunk having this like, I love you, man, conversation while talking about murdering, you know, the love of Christopher's life recently. Slap you on the back. Yeah, you're watching the scene, or at least I was. And I was thinking, I'm glad that Tony and Chrissy have this bond with each other. And that they can talk about their feelings this way and how sweet. And Tony really is like a dad to him. And then sort of like shaking yourself out of that, like, no, they're talking about how they do anything for each other, including helping cover up the murder that they designed of Adriana. And I am just convinced that Christopher's heroin use throughout his life is because he's in so much pain about these this person that he's allowed himself to become Mm -hmm. Um, because there is always that scared little boy in there. I do believe he thought he loved Adriana as much as a person could. You believe Michael Imperioli in those desperate scenes of, fuck, what am I going to do? And I think that's why he uses heroin. I just think that's why he fell off the wagon with H was because of that conversation with Tony. That's such a good point because I think that you see Tony trying to maybe balance out his violent side and his capital F family by going to the football practice, by making sure that his family is taken care of, to getting calm, the tennis bracelet she wants for Christmas or whatever the fuck Tony thinks it is to be a good person. I think that is Tony's catharsis along with a bowl of ice cream on the couch at night. Chrissy's is heroin. Chrissy doesn't have an outlet that's like, here's how I'm going to go be a human in my life. He doesn't have a single fucking friend. He is the most alone of all of these characters. And they show you that from the very first episode. I've been thinking a lot about what Chingy said last episode, you know, about like connecting with him and even how like easy it is to choose violence when you're afraid, when you feel backed into a corner for a lot of people. So in Moe and Joe, which is the 10th episode of season six, there's a scene that I thought we should play. This whole series, Tony and Janice, his sister Janice, his older sister, they are always butting heads. She's a complete freak. So is he. She, um, that Tony Soprano is a complete freak. That would be my review of all of the Sopranos. Both Tony and Janice have a lot of shit with each other. 
why does he resent her so much? Because she's a leech and she's coming back to just live in Livia's house and she's not really here to help and I'm going to end up giving her money. And that always seemed like where Tony's hatred for her stemmed from. But in this episode, he has a session with Melfi where he starts talking about Janice. And you see a little more into where this rage for his big sister comes from. She fought it out with my mother and finally took off. First minute she could. What if you had taken off? Well, that never would have happened, because I wasn't like that. I did what I was told. Your father's son. Yeah, that's right. And all that went with it. That's right. All the success and the money. But beyond that, what else did you inherit? I'll tell you what I inherited. My mother. Janice got laid, she took off. She laughed at all this shit. Then the trip's over and she's back and she's one of us and she wants her peace. Well, let me tell you, she gets nothing because I got the scars, so it's mine. Whoa, that's some resentment. <laughs> Tony is telling Melfi like she was never around. She took off, she went away, she left me alone. I thought it was interesting that Melfi talks about being his father's son, what came with that. And I think Melfi is trying to get him to say what came with it was violence and a short fuse and infidelity, all of the things that were modeled to him by his father. Bringing home bacon. Bringing home the bacon, cutting off pinkies. And Tony's response is like, all oh, the success and the money. Like, Tony cannot go there with her. It's particularly enmeshed with Tony, with bringing home the bacon, and again, like, having to take care of all the women in his life, even though he probably doesn't, but he has to have that, like, built-in resentment, like, this is all they ever want from me. I'm supposed to protect everybody, and I'm supposed to provide for everybody. These women who use their bodies to get money and to get security and then dare talk back to me. Mm -hmm. But you know what's the funniest twist of all of this? So he has this complete meltdown in therapy about Janice. I got the scars, so it's mine. Tony, mm -hmm. in the same episode, gives Johnny Sack, who is now in jail, he gives Johnny Sack's house to Janice and Bobby. Janice is like, thank you, Tony, my wonderful brother. And, and you see the cycle continues. Like, yeah, Tony can't help it but want to, even though he's got the scars, so it's mine. And where the fuck was she? In the same episode, he turns around and gives her Johnny Sack's house because he knows that that will make her happy. He actually understands his sister. I think that both Janice and Tony are just constantly using each other for this sick role play. Because I also read it like he was so happy to like both take something from Ginny Sack and be cruel to his sometime rival. He takes away her house and gives it to his sister who he loathes. Also, he can trap Janice into this like, oh, I must be grateful to my brother now forever because he's given me a big house. It's manipulative either way. If it's a wish for him to be loved, it's manipulative in that sense because he's giving her something in order to make that happen. And right. it's also what you said completely, that he's trying to keep her indebted to him. Yeah. So the next episode, it's episode 11 in season six. It's called Cold Stones. It's one of my favorite episodes on the whole series, mostly because you see Carmela in Paris. It's like Carmela has like these like Mrs. Dalloway monologues in it where she's like completely overcome by like the concept of history and time to think about all of the people that have lived there for generations and generations before. She says something like, it's just so sad. It just makes you think. It just makes you look at yourself differently. She has another monologue about like when we go to a new city we see all these people around us who like we didn't think existed before we witnessed them in our presence in this new place. And then Tony, meanwhile, is back to fucking strippers. Wait, she goes to Paris with Rosalie on like a girl's 
week because it's the first time that she's really been able to like go on a solo vacation. Yeah. Uh, But he just wants to treat her to this solo vacation where she can have an existential awakening (laughs) only for him to start up with strippers again so he can feel like a man. That's right. So a couple things happen on this episode. The biggest thing is that we continue to see the struggles between AJ and Tony. This is not a Tony Meadow dynamic. This is very different. You really start to see his complete disdain for his son. You know, the speech about it's just not in you, you're a nice guy, I think mm-hmm. is is the kind side of Tony and that has a shelf life and AJ quits his job at Blockbuster. He's sort of just sitting around the house and Tony has had it and he (laughs) gets AJ a job. He tells AJ that he's getting him a job at a construction site and AJ is like, no, I don't think so. And Tony, it's actually an amazing moment of just like James Gandolfini too. He very casually takes a football helmet (laughs) off of like a a workbench sitting on the side of the garage and takes it and just smashes AJ's windshield and he's like and I'm going to start taking away everything of yours if you don't go to this job tomorrow morning right Um, so so one of the next scenes you see Tony in therapy and Tony and Melby are just sitting in silence staring at each other like Tony doesn't really have anything to say and Mm -hmm. Melfi says to Tony, is there anything else before we wrap up that you'd like to say? And Tony leaves Melfi with a doorknob comment for the ages. There are incredibly long silences in this clip, but we think that everything in it is really important. So we're going to shorten those long pauses. How about the fact that I hate my son? Like, come on, he's sitting on the computer in his fucking underwear. Wasting his time in some chit-chat room, going back and forth with some other fucking jerk-off. Giggling like a little schoolgirl. When I fucking smash his fucking face in. My son. What do you think about that? Anthony, I think your anger towards AJ has been building for some time. We have to deal with this. All I know is it's a good thing my father's not alive, because let me tell you, he'd find this fucking hilarious. Find what hilarious? The kind of son I produced. You mean because Anthony doesn't conform to your father's idea of what a man should be? His, mine, or anybody's. Let me tell you, if Carmelo let me kick AJ's ass like my father kicked my ass, he might have gone up with some balls. Like you? Yeah, like me. He might have also grown up taking out his anger at his father's brutality towards him on others. He might have grown up with a desperate need to dominate and control. Anthony, we've been dancing around this for years. How you live. What is it you want from your life? I couldn't even hit him if I wanted to. He's so fucking little. It's come out of the side of the family. They're small people. Her father, you could knock him over with a fucking feather. Okay. But I have to point out, What you resent Carmela doing for AJ, protecting him from his father, is the very thing you had often wished your mother had done for you. Boom. There's a ton of silence on The Sopranos. There's a ton of silence on Mad Men, too. But yeah, almost all of the audio that we've used on these three episodes, we shorten the, the gaps. And in this session, the silence is used, I think, to underline the Herculean and even Sisyphean attempts of Dr. Melfi to get Tony to look at himself. He cannot do it. You really think in the end, the comment about his dad and the brutality on others, and we wouldn't want AJ and we need to look at this and we've been dancing around it. The long pause is met with, oh, you couldn't even hit him if I wanted to because he's so fucking little. It's like Karm's dad. That says it all. It's really aggravating to listen to. And Lorraine Bracco is amazing in her reactions to him. You see, I think, disappointment and also almost fear in her eyes of like, he really is not, he can't go there. The season finale of season six, he tells Melfi, 
he's really proud of himself for not sleeping with Juliana Skiff, played by Juliana Margulies. And he also doesn't take revenge on Chrissy for fucking her because Chrissy confesses to him that he and Juliana Skiff have been seeing each other. And he, Tony's talking to Melfi about it. And Melfi's like, that's incredible. You're not punishing Chrissy and you didn't do anything out of vengeance and Tony doesn't think he's made progress and he says to her probably the only reason I still come here is to hang out with you because nothing really changes with the therapy part like indeed Tony indeed yeah it's definitely the beginning of the end for for them um, quickly in this episode to the character of Vito, who has been hiding out in New Hampshire with, I'm sorry, a boyfriend that is way too hot for him, who's a volunteer firefighter. He decides he wants to return back to New Jersey. He misses the life of being a wise guy. He doesn't really like, he tries to do a real contracting job when he's in New Hampshire and he's like looking at his watch every five minutes because he's never had a real construction job in his life. He's always just been sitting on a lawn chair watching. And below security guards. Below security <laughs> guards, exactly. He decides that he is going to come back to New Jersey. It is a very bad idea. He is killed in a, a hate crime by Phil Leotardo. You know, Matt and Alan point this out in the Soprano Sessions and, and Chingy mentioned this to me when I talked to her last time that she doesn't think it's a coincidence that Phil Leotardo, he's hiding in a closet in the hotel room that he kills Vito and then he comes out of the closet to kill Vito for being gay. I'm bringing this up because at the end of this episode, it's the very last scene. It breaks my heart it can't, every time I watch it. It's Vito's children who mm-hmm. his son, I think, is about 10 and mm-hmm. his daughter is probably like seven or eight. And Vito at this point has told them all they know because dad has been on the run hiding out in New Hampshire that he's in the CIA. That's what he told them, that he's a spy. And I'm just going to play a little bit of the clip. Police are withholding specific details of the murder of Brooklyn Walton of Spadafore. He spoke on conditions of anonymity. What does that mean? It means... When you don't know who the person is, told reporters that Spadafore Four and his wife had recently separated. Relative stated that the victim had surprised his friends and family by declaring himself a homosexual and saying he wished to lead an openly gay lifestyle. I don't understand. Dad wasn't a spy. No. The resignation of no, he wasn't, and struggling to pronounce the word anonymity. And I think the daughter is too young to understand anything, but he's old enough to sort of know. And it's so sad. We will see in the next season what comes of Vito Jr. We're going to hop into our next episode. Join us for 4B right after this. Um, let's hear from us, Aaron, right now, doing our own ad for our Patreon. And if you're listening, um, hop on over to the next episode and we'll wrap stuff up. Great. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Biz. I had a question for you. Yeah. Have you ever had a bonus before? A bonus. A bonus. It's where you get like a little extra money from your employer just for being on the payroll. A bonus. Of course you haven't because you're a woman and I've never had a bonus because I'm a woman too. I just left my body. Yeah. We're disassociating right now as we record this Patreon ad. What we're realizing is that though we've never had bonuses, we would really like our listeners to have bonuses by way of a bonus episode once a month. If you sign up for our Patreon, $3 is all it takes. $3 a month you get a full extra bonus daddy issues where we go through we talk about dads men people patriarchy patriarchy celebrity gossip ripped from the daily dad headlines of the daily mail exactly they love like a dad being killed by a crocodile cultural analysis we'll talk about 
all of that in a full bonus daddy issues episode go to our patreon right now patreon.com backslash tell me about your father for three dollars a month which it feels like a tip but it's really a bonus it's really a bonus we don't know what a bonus is again but we know (laughs) we want you to have a bonus episode there will be one awaiting for you on our patreon just head there right now and you will get them monthly you're gonna love it you're gonna love it patreon patreon.com backslash tell me about your father yeah you then tell me about your father and daddy issues are created and produced by aaron hosier elizabeth thompson and matthew philp you can always listen for free on apple podcasts spotify iHeartRadio, google and anywhere you get your shows follow us at tell me about your father on instagram and facebook Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, tell me about your father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, Go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.